We are in our Lenten series of the, the Liturgy of the Ordinary, and we've been talking about uh, how we remember that even in our ordinary days, in our ordinary steps, in our ordinary hours, that God loves us and is with us, always. So last week we talked about being beloved. We talked about that on Wednesday night too. And what it meant to just have a sliver of time in our day to remember and know that all we are is beloved. Before the to-do list, before the schedule, before the calendar sets in, that we are beloved. That brings us to today in this body. Hear this reading from the Gospel of John, chapters 3, verses 1 through 17, and I'm going to skip verses 11 through 15 from John. Now there is a Pharisee named Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after growing old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Skipping to verse 16, a familiar one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have everlasting life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The religious minds of thousands of years ago and present day and everything in between have relentlessly tried to figure out how this bag of bones we call our bodies plug into the spiritual person we call our soul. And I'm sure it's shocking to you to find out that there's no consensus among Christians or Jews or people of faith or people without faith for that matter as to what this organ system held together by muscle and tendons and encased in skin means in our relationship to God. For instance, have you ever wondered how we're going to look after our resurrection? Will you be able to recognize me by my face or by my voice or maybe just my presence? Will you, um, will the bodies that came from dust and returned to dust, 
Will they have anything to say? Or will we just kind of be floating there in the universe? Have you ever wondered why we have five fingers instead of four fingers or six fingers? Or why our skin burns in the sun, at least mine does? Or why our hair turns gray and white or falls out? I've had a list of growing questions I want to ask God upon entering the pearly gates since I was about five years old. Inquiring minds want to know, God, what kind of angry spurt were you on when you invented ingrown toenails or sinus cavities that get upset every time the weather outside changes, which is every ten minutes here in Kentucky? I have a lot of questions and I need to know. The worst part about the human mind is the need to know. Because when we don't know, we'd like to appear that we do. And as educated Christians who have worked days or months or years on the craft of being a Christian, we like to think we know what we're talking about. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night when it's dark outside and says that they, his religious buddies, who know the craft of Judaism, believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Because Nicodemus says that uh, they know that no one can perform the miracles that Jesus is performing unless he was really the Messiah, the Son of God. A very calculated answer. See, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So if the scripture foretells the Messiah performing these miracles and Jesus is performing these miracles, then the scriptures foretold Jesus and its reason and its fact and its logic and its headspace. We believe you because we can prove you, thus earning our golden crown to show others. Enter Jesus. <laughs> Jesus begins with his refrain we'll hear over and over again. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus scratches his head, takes a step back, and internally puts together some unholy names he will call his buddies who sent to tell Jesus this. um, Because he got caught. Out of nowhere, Jesus throws this metaphor at him that he was not quite ready for. And it seems like it's me, it means that Jesus wants a longer conversation than just headspace. Be polite, Nicodemus. He probably didn't really mean that, being born again. He probably just wants you to ask and clarify so you can walk away. Okay. Enter Nicodemus. How can anyone be born again after growing old? Can I enter a a second time into my mother's womb and be born? And I imagine Jesus giggling a little bit here as he realizes how lost this metaphor is on Nicodemus. What is born of the flesh is flesh. And what is born of the spirit is spirit. A equals A. B equals B, A does not equal B, flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit, and flesh is not spirit. And we want to read this scripture, the expression of being born again, through the lens of baptism. Obviously, Jesus meant 
to be reborn, you had to be baptized. We know because we're studied and educated Christians. We've got the headspace for it. The trick is that the author of John is actually a Jewish writer looking through the rest of his writing. He's really not that concerned with baptism, y'all. John is our spiritual gospel full of signs and wonders of Jesus that point to this almost mystic picture of who Jesus is. So the metaphor of being born again, at least in this context, text implies something different than baptismal instruction. So how can anyone be born again after having grown old? Nicodemus's question isn't the soft pitch to Jesus's home run on baptism like we want it to be. What the studied, meticulous, book-smart Nicodemus asks is something more like, how can I go back to the beginning of my life when I've worked so hard to get here? Why would I want newness when I've worked so hard to get to this place of maturity and establishment? I finally figured out what life is supposed to look like, and you want me to start again from the beginning? Nicodemus had, had studied, he had read, he had learned. Nicodemus could talk the talk. He could drop the right words at the right time to make himself seem like he had learned his way into heaven. And Jesus says this climbing of this intellectual ladder that you think allows you to understand God, that's not going to get you anywhere. That intellectual ladder... You are working to climb. Isn't you trying to understand God? At some point, it turned you into believing that your accumulation of knowledge can allow you to become God. And remember what happens when we believe and act like we can become God? When we dictate what is right or wrong from our peak of our intellectual mountain? Remember what happens when we view something, we view equality with God as something to be grasped? Remember Eden? Remember the, the tree of good and evil, the fruit of knowledge? Remember that downfall from the intention for humankind was the hunger for more knowledge? We have wanted to be like God since the beginning of human existence when we were told we can't be. But not by walking the walk. We'd rather just talk the talk. The downfall of our knowledge is that our faith begins to look like something that requires a brain instead of a heart. It requires headspace. Instead of relationship. Tish Harrison Warren is the author of our book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She tells the story of her days in seminary. She struggled, like many who went to seminary, myself included, with staying grounded in the world while our minds are being expanded. One of my favorite phrases of hers is this. She says, being surrounded by such great minds was a gift. 
but I began to feel like the sort of Christianity that I gravitated towards only required my brain. So if our faith requires more than our brains, what does faith mean for our bodies? Why in this space, in these pews, each week do we sit and stand and sing and walk and read and listen and pray and then return to do it a week later? I had the opportunity to lead worship a few, at a few churches. Um, in one of the churches where I led worship, I asked for a real piano. Not a keyboard, not a keyboard, but a real piano. Luckily, the church I was serving in had just had one donated from someone's family. Um, a woman who had passed away intended for this piano to be donated to the church. And when you looked at it, it was a beautiful black upright Yamaha piano. My favorite kinds of pianos are Yamahas. That might mean nothing to most of you, but that's my favorite kind of piano. So I was excited. But even though it looked sparkly and new, what I came to find out was that this piano had been sitting in this woman's house for about 15 years, untouched, untuned, So when this piano was brought into our worship space, we tuned it, and about three weeks later, it was out of tune. So we tuned it again. About three weeks later, it was out of tune. See, if a piano sits for a long time without being tuned, you can tune it. But it doesn't hold that very well. The more a piano is tuned throughout its lifetime, the less often you have to tune it. And in a piano or a guitar or a drum kit or a violin or whatever you you have to tune, it is rarely, though sometimes it is, a huge movement to tune. It's tightening a string or loosening a coil just ever so slightly. Not a lot, but just a little. But it's enough that when you play that instrument along with other instruments, you're all in tune together. Coming together with our bodies for worship each week is something like tuning ourselves Our minds, yes, but our bodies, too. The sitting, standing, reading, singing together, the physically being in a place together, tunes us to the same spirit, to the same heart of God. Being together and doing ordinary things like sitting or standing or reading or eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches may not change us dramatically week to week, but it might. But instead, together we are slowly tweaked, sometimes stretched, sometimes humbled to be in tune. But then, of course, 
Tuned instruments all sitting in a room are simply tuned instruments sitting in a room. Even the most finely and meticulously tuned instrument sitting in a room by itself does no good to the world. And it eventually just goes out of tune again. When we come into this building together, we come to be in tune to this same spirit by doing the same movements, by saying the same words together. The ordinary task of Christians is simply to be together. Because when we're all together and all in tune to each other and the work of the spirit, then we get to take ourselves, the instruments of God, into the world beyond these walls. And that is where the symphony is made. That is where, when we are creating relationships with the widow, the orphan, the alien in our towns, with the addicts or the incarcerated or the recovering with the students in need of reading or math tutoring, with the elderly in need of meals, with the folks who need relationship in the spirit that are out there. We are tuned together by being together. So out there, we may sing of God's grace. Amen.